The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 136. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the God of gods, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his mercy endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his mercy endures forever. To him who by wisdom made the heavens, for his mercy endures forever. To him who laid out the earth above the waters, for his mercy endures forever. To him who made great lights, for his mercy endures forever. The sun to rule by day, for his mercy endures forever. The moon and stars to rule by night, for his mercy endures forever. To him who struck Egypt in their firstborn, for his mercy endures forever. And brought out Israel from among them, for his mercy endures forever. With a strong hand and with an outstretched arm, for his mercy endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his mercy endures forever, and made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his mercy endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea, for his mercy endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his mercy endures forever. To him who struck down great kings, for his mercy endures forever, and slew famous kings, for his mercy endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his mercy endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his mercy endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage, for his mercy endures forever. A heritage to Israel, his servant, for his mercy endures forever. Who remembered us in our lowly state, for his mercy endures forever. And rescued us from our enemies, for his mercy endures forever. Who gives food to all flesh, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the God of heaven, for his mercy endures forever. Does anybody know how many times that's repeated? Did you count as we went along? 26 times. That is the gematria for the name of God. Jehovah is spelled Yud, 10. He is 5. Vav is 6. And He is 5. So it comes out to 26. So 26 repetitions, which matches the name of the Lord Jehovah. Anyway, a little curiosity for you there. All right. Today we're in Numbers 21, 1 through 9. The king of Arad, the Canaanite, who dwelt in the south, heard that Israel was coming on the road to Atharim. Then he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord listened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them and their cities. So the name of that place was called Hormah. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. 
Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was if a serpent had bitten anyone when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. It is an amazing set of nine verses today. The first three seem completely disconnected from the final six, but they're not. And more, their placement has caused countless scholars to scratch their heads and look for rather odd explanations as to how they ended up in this spot. But everything does fit as it should. That will be evident enough as we go on. One bite at a time and the whole elephant goes down. And that is what we are doing each week as we continue through this magnificent word. Several times while typing today's passage, I actually said out loud, what a marvelous word. It is alive. I was sitting there typing the sermon and my heart was racing. It was literally racing at what it was showing us. And I just kept saying it. It's alive. It's alive. And that is how the author of Hebrews describes it. He calls it living and powerful. And this is so. It is living and active because it points to the source of life and power. Our text verse comes from John 1, it's verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What does the law in relation to grace have to do with the passage from the law? And why would that be an acceptable text verse for our passage? Well, if we remember what happened in the previous sermon where Aaron died, and what that pictured, then we can take a general snapshot of redemptive history with some of our verses today, and then we can continue on with that theme from there. It's generally not possible to take these stories and put them in a chronological box, and so things are introduced, and then details are filled in, and then the story continues on. We have seen this consistently since we departed Sinai with Israel, and it will continue on today. Great things are to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three separate thoughts for you today. And I'll tell you what, when we get going into these thoughts, something really wonderful is coming. But our first thought is, and the Lord listened. It's verses one through three. Verse one, the king of Arad We now come to a story, the occurrence of which is not chronologically easy to determine. The last occurrence noted was the death of Aaron, and that came just after Edom's refusal to allow Israel to pass through their land. It is also mentioned in relation to Aaron's death in Numbers chapter 33. Here's what it said there. Then Aaron the priest went up to Mount Hor at the command of the Lord and died there in the 40th year after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt on the first day of the fifth month. Aaron was 123 years old when he died on Mount Hor. Now the king of Arad, the Canaanite who dwelt in the south in the land of Canaan, heard of the coming of the children of Israel. Therefore, the initial event, that of the coming out of the king of Arad against Israel, likely happened at this time, meaning after Aaron's death. But it does not naturally follow that Israel's retaliation occurred at that time. And this is going to be seen later. The passage also comes directly before a memorable account that will be referred to by Jesus in John chapter 3. It appears they are placed as they are based on subject matter rather than chronology. 
Here it mentions Melech Arad, or the king of Arad. The name Arad comes from either an unused root meaning to sequester, and thus a fugitive, or from a root which signifies untamed, such as a wild donkey. Either way, the result is the same. It carries the sense of one who is unrestrained. The location is believed to be what is today called Tel Arad, which is about 20 miles south of Hebron. He is further designated as, verse 1 continues, the Canaanite. Hekena'ani, the Canaanite. As we have seen in previous sermons, Canaanites picture those who bring others into subjection. That is literally seen here in the coming verses. Verse 1 continues, who dwelt in the south. Yoshev ha-negev, sitting in the negev. The word yeshav means to sit, and thus it is a place of ease, meaning one's dwelling. Negev is a word which comes from a root meaning dry or parched. It is the southern desert area of Israel. If you've ever gone through there, you know it's very barren. Verse 1 continues, heard that Israel was coming on the road to Atharim. These words here are a bit tricky. This king of Arad heard that Israel was coming, but the Hebrew reads, Derek ha-Atharim. The word Derek, which we saw in last week's sermon, signifies a way or a road. But the next word, Ha-Atharim, is found only here in the Bible. It is debated whether this is a name, meaning the Atharim, or an explanation, meaning the spies or the merchants, either of which may be correct. The word may be connected to the word found in Numbers 14, verse 6, Ha-Tarim, or the spies who had gone to spy out Canaan. The same word is found in parallel verses in Kings and Chronicles and is translated as merchants. The word is also similar to the Arabic word atar, which signifies a footprint or a trace. And so it might simply mean a caravan route. Being in the plural, atarim, it would be footprints or traces, a caravan route. This seems the most likely because the spies would have taken an obvious route in their trek to and through Canaan. And if it is not the same route as them, they would still travel on a known route. Verse 1 continues, Then he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. It appears that Arad came quickly and without Israel being prepared in any measure for their arrival. In this, he was able to fall on Israel and take some of them captive. This seems likely because if Israel had been prepared, Arad would not have been able to succeed in this manner. This is evident from the coming verses. At this point, there is no mention of any reason for the attack, such as Israel's disobedience. Sometimes the Lord will have an enemy come against Israel because they were disobedient. It's to punish them and to teach them a lesson. Nothing is recorded like that. It simply is recorded that the Canaanites came upon Israel. Thus, this is an anticipatory lesson for Israel. The Lord knew this would occur, and yet he allowed it to happen without informing them to be prepared. Thus, it would be a lesson that Israel should always be on guard against those who come against them, and that the conquest of Canaan was not of their own will and ability, but because of the Lord's. They were to trust in him and acknowledge that he alone wins the battles. That appears evident from the next words. Verse 2, so Israel made a vow to the Lord, ve'yidar Yisrael neder le'yehovah, and vowed Israel a vow to Yehovah. It is trust in the Lord and a reliance on him that is highlighted here. Were it not so, the people would have been recorded as going up against a rod with their own might as they attempted to do back in Numbers 14, if you remember that sermon. 
as we will see, the two passages, Numbers 14 and here, are being set in parallel to show the expected outcome based on a reliance on the Lord. Verse 2 continues, <laughs> and said, If you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, if in giving you will give the people the this into my hand, it is a statement of absoluteness and surety. Israel is making a proclamation to the Lord that he will take specific and complete action on a particular matter if the Lord will grant his petition. It is showing a complete and total reliance on Jehovah for the outcome, but with the promise that in the outcome there will be no deviation from what is promised and what was requested. They are tied together in one thought. The request is that of the Lord giving the people into his hand. The promise based on that condition is, verse 2 continues, then I will utterly destroy their cities. Vehaharamti et arehem. And the complete devotion I will give their cities. The word is haram. And the meaning is to devote or set apart something to the Lord. In this case, it is as accursed or made anathema. It is what was expected of Jericho when it was destroyed. The entire city was set apart to the Lord. This was proclaimed by Joshua to the people in Joshua chapter 6 with these words. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction. That means haram. It and all who are in it. Only Rahab the harlot shall live. She and all who are with her in the house because she hid the messengers that we sent. And you, by all means, abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. There, the entire city was devoted to the Lord. Some things were to be utterly destroyed, and the precious things were to be wholly dedicated to him. No plunder could belong to the people because the city was under the ban to the Lord alone. All things under such a devotion were returned to him in one way or another, either destroyed, burnt, whatever, or they were purified through fire and put into the treasury. It all belonged to the Lord. Verse 3, and the Lord listened to the voice of Israel. The lack of mentioning the name Moses is not to be missed. Rather, Israel is mentioned four times in these three verses, this being the last. It says, Ve'yishma Yehovah bekol Yisrael, and listen, Yehovah, to voice Israel. Israel was attacked. Israel was harmed. Israel made a vow, and the Lord listened to Israel. Obviously, Israel spoke through Moses to the Lord, but that is not what is being conveyed. The unity of the people is... Unlike chapter 14, where there was disunity, here there is complete unity. Moses does not need to be named. In their unity, the Lord heard, verse 3 continues, and delivered up the Canaanites. The yeten et ha and delivered up the Canaanite. The word is singular. They are taken as one under Arad, just as Israel is taken as one under the Lord. It isn't one against many or many against one, but a force against a force. The Canaanite, he who brings into subjection, is himself brought into subjection. He is defeated before Israel because the Lord delivered him up. Verse 3 continues, And they utterly destroyed them and their cities. 
ve'yacharem et hem ve'et arehem. And they gave the complete devotion to them and their cities, exactly as had been promised by Israel, so Israel fulfilled their promise. Unlike Jericho, where Achan brought trouble on Israel by violating the ban, the people here faithfully followed through with the vow that they had made. Here it notes cities in the plural, though, and therefore Arad is not the only city included. And it looks then to Hormah being a general location which encompasses several cities, inclusive of Arad. Finally, as a sign of their victory in the Lord, the account finishes with, verse 3 continues, so the name of that place was called Hormah. And called named the place Hormah. The name Haremah, or Hormah, comes from the word which was used in verses 2 and 3, Haram. The name comes from the act, and it signifies what occurred at the place. It is the same name given to the place at the end of Numbers 14, except there it contained an article, Ha-Haremah, or the destruction. What seems certain is that the actual destruction of this place now does not take place until later. The promise is made, and when the city was attacked by Joshua after Israel's entrance into Canaan, the devotion actually took place. This is because the same location is named in Joshua 12.14. There it mentions the king of Hormah and the king of Arad. It may be, as I said a moment ago, that Hormah is a location encompassing a general area inclusive of Arad, and Arad was a lesser city within the area. For some, there is a troubling aspect to the thought of the devotion to destruction being complete only later at the time of Joshua. This is mentioned by the pulpit commentary. They say this, this, however, throws the narrative as it stands into confusion and discredit for the ban and the destruction become a mockery and an unreality if nothing more was done to the towns of the king of Arad than was done at the same time to the towns of all its neighbors. It would be more reverent to reject the story as an error or a falsehood than to empty it of the meaning which is obviously intended to convey. What they're saying is some scholars will say that this destruction of this town occurred after Israel went into the land of Israel and destroyed them. And that is correct. That's what I'm telling you, and that is what is correct. But the pulpit commentary says no, and the reason why is because these people are under the ban. However, all of Israel, the land where the Canaanites were, got the same destruction as them. That's their logical argument, but they did not study their Bible, okay? In this, the pulpit commentary says that putting the account here is inappropriate because the cities of the king of Arad received the same fate as the rest of the towns of Canaan, which were conquered by Joshua. For this reason, they go on to say that Israel destroyed Arad now. The towns were repopulated, and then they were destroyed again by Joshua after entering Canaan. This is incorrect. First, the conquest of Canaan occurred starting just a few short months after this account. They are in their 40th year. Aaron is dead, and in a short span, Moses, too, will be dead. After 30 days of mourning for him, Israel will enter Canaan in the first month of the 41st year. The entire conquest of Canaan will only take seven years. Therefore, this is incorrect. Secondly, Israel would have to enter into Canaan in part or in whole in order to destroy Arad now. That is not recorded, nor would it be acceptable until the time of punishment was fulfilled. Only the 12 spies had entered into the land of Israel 
10 had died, and only two others would enter after the 40 years were complete. And finally, Arad and its cities did not share the same fate as the other cities of Canaan, as the pulpit commentary supposes. Jericho was under the ban and devoted wholly to the Lord. We just read that a moment ago. However, the other cities were not. For example, of the second city to be destroyed, I, it says this, now the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid nor be dismayed. Take all the people of war with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Here it is, only its spoil and its cattle you shall take his booty for yourself. So it was not harem because the people could keep the cattle and the spoil. Lay an ambush for the city behind it. And again, after the total destruction of all of the cities mentioned in Joshua 10 and 11, where it said time and again of each city that Israel came against, they struck all of the people who were in the city, meaning men, women, and children. Nothing was left alive. However, in summary of those battles, in Joshua chapter 11, it says this, So all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua took and struck with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them, as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded. But as for the cities that stood on their mounds, Israel burned none of them except Hatzor only, which Joshua burned. And here it is. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the children of Israel took as bounty for themselves. It is not harem, but they struck every man with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they left nothing breathing. Therefore, these surrounding cities did not share the same fate as Arad. They were not harem or devoted to destruction. Only the people were. Arad, however, was harem, and therefore the entire city, like Jericho, would be offered up to the Lord as an offering of devotion. Even the plunder would be so devoted. The account here, as we have seen numerous times so far, is one which gives certain details in advance, and the events and the rest of the detail is explained later. And so what we have here is a passage which is set parallel to the account in Numbers chapter 14. In order to see this, both passages need to be read side by side, which we're going to do right now. From Numbers 14, then Moses told these words to all the children of Israel. And the people mourned greatly, and they rose early in the morning and went up to the top of the mountain, saying, Here we are, and we will go up to the place which the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. And Moses said, Now, why do you transgress the command of the Lord? For this will not succeed. Do not go up, lest you be defeated by your enemies, for the Lord is not among you. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites are there before you, and you shall fall by the sword, because you have turned away from the Lord. The Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the mountaintop. Nevertheless, neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed from the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who dwelt in that mountain came down and attacked them and drove them back as far as Hormah. As I said, it has an article there. It's actually the Hormah, the destruction. The king of Arad from Numbers 21, the Canaanite who dwelt in the south heard that Israel was coming on the road to Atharim. Then he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord listened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites and they utterly destroyed them and their cities 
So the name of that place was called Hormah. The first occurred just after the punishment was levied upon Israel for rejecting the Lord. The second began to occur about 38 years later, just before the time of punishment was ended. It's like bookends on their time of punishment. You have to understand what's going on in order to get the typology. The first saw Israel rejecting Moses' words and thus rejecting the word of the Lord. It ended in defeat, and they're being driven back as far as the destruction. The second saw Israel work in agreement with the Lord and resulted in the destruction of their enemies. The first pictured attempting to enter God's inheritance through personal works through the law or simply through personal righteousness. This second picture is relying on the Lord alone to be brought into his inheritance and only then working to please the Lord. The first occurred while Aaron was alive, picturing his mediation of the law, which cannot bring about salvation. The second occurred after the death of the high priest, picturing entering God's inheritance after the death of Jesus Christ, not before. This is why Moses is never mentioned in this passage. It is not by the law that one enters God's promise, but by faith in the one who fulfilled the law and who then brings his people in and subdues the enemies. The victory is the Lord's alone. The enemies of the Lord's people come to harass and destroy. They come after the weak and the weary without a care. But the Lord will defend them, great weapons he will employ. Don't have fear, good Christian, for you, the Lord is there. He is the rod lifted high, the power of God. He is the stone of support as a place of rest. His gospel of peace is nigh, so have your feet shod. The enemy is around, so in your armor be dressed. By his power you can ward off all foes. In his strength the devil stands no chance. Though he comes at you with mighty blows, fix your feet firmly in the battle a warrior's stance. Does everybody see what happened in that last passage? Israel disobeyed the Lord. They were punished for 2,000 years. They tried to enter God's inheritance apart from the Lord, and they've been trying now for 2,000 years. But at the end of the period of punishment, they are now back in the land, and the Lord is getting ready for them to receive Christ, and he will deliver them and bring them in. And you will see this in the next sermon and the sermon after that, because every one of these is logically following not an arbitrary story about people wandering in the wilderness, but a story about the people of Israel in this world today. This is a typological picture of what God is doing in human history with one group of people as an example to the rest of the world. Our second thought today, I'm going to tell you what marvelous stuff is found in this passage. It's entitled the bronze serpent. It's verses four through nine. Verse four, then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea. Everybody hear that Red Sea? You know what it says in Hebrew there? Yam Suf. You have people that say that Israel came out of Egypt, right? And they went through Yom Suf, which means the Sea of Reeds. Oh, of course, every modern scholar agrees with that. They went through a little shallow sea and, listen, the whole Egyptian army drowned in that sea. That would be a greater miracle than them going through the Red Sea and being parted, right? Well, guess what? The same word here, Yom Suf, is used. It doesn't mean the Sea of Reeds. It means the Sea of the End, Suf, the End. It's the end of the land of Israel. This here shows you that those scholars that tried to tear apart the Bible back in the Exodus account are full of it, okay? Yam Suf. <laughs> this is now in response to not being allowed to travel through Edom, as was seen in the previous chapter. The people had to actually turn away from the direction of Canaan, having their backs to it. 
This was an order, verse 4 continues, to go around the land of Edom. Cambridge's commentary on this says, throughout the whole of the detour, and this is a long walk, if you look on a map, it's a long way, no encampments are named until Israel reaches the region of Moab. It is as if they find it curious that for such an immensely long journey, no stops are named. And that would be true unless one understood that the Lord only chooses events which will give insights into later redemptive history. Real events of history are selected to help lead us to understand Jesus, his work, and his plans. Those things which occurred as normal life in the times of Israel are ignored because they have no bearing on the greater story of redemption. Verse 4 continues, and the, here's an example so you understand what I just said. Is it recorded David's birth, his birth weight in the Bible? No. no, because it has no bearing on redemptive history, but his death is recorded. He was cold, he couldn't get warm, something happened with a woman, and so that's recorded. God only takes stories and information that is relevant to something he is going to do later in history to show us typology. That's what's going on there. All right, verse four continues, and the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. Aaron died on the first day of the fifth month of the 40th year. They mourned for him 30 days. Therefore, they could not have left Mount Hor until at least the start of the sixth month. This would be around September. It would be extremely hot and dry. I've been talking to Sergio and Rhoda in Israel. I do every day, but they have had a heat wave there. It's very, very hot. It's been up in 112, 115 degrees. It's just punishing, right? It gets worse. This is a sharav. It's a wind coming up from, Israel, from uh, Africa right now. You get the uh, hamsim, which comes from the east. That's the east wind that Jonah almost died under. Okay, that is a really hot wind, and that's what would be happening about this time. It's very hot. It's very dry. They would have to travel through the Arava Desert towards Ezion Geber, which is very near where Elat is today, right at the head of the Red Sea, where Egypt, Israel, and Jordan meet. The trek would be an arduous one for so many people while on foot. The terrain would be loose sand and gravel, and therefore so many people would kick up immense dust. There's no shade except some shrubs and some desert trees, and I'm going to tell you, they have minimum foliage. And it would have been the time of the year when the east winds with their immense heat and accompanying sandstorms would come through. Thus it says in Hebrew, Vatiksar nefesh ha'am baderek, and was reaped the soul of the people on the way. Their souls being reaped signifies that their tempers were just cut short as if being reaped. Before going on, it needs to be remembered that the entire time that this is occurring, their shoes never wore out, and the pillar of cloud and fire was with them, and the people continued to receive manna each and every day, six days a week. Verse 5, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. It is an unusual statement. It says they spoke against Elohim, God, rather than Jehovah, meaning the Lord. The next verse clearly identifies Jehovah as God, but this is a word against God in general and against Moses in particular. And their complaint is, verse 5 continues, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? This is the same complaint that their fathers had made about 38 years earlier in Exodus chapter 14 and Exodus chapter 16. Now the new generation of Israel, including those 19 and younger who departed from Egypt, repeat the same thing as their faithless fathers. Verse 5 continues, for there is no food and no water. The words are untrue. 
the rock which is Christ and which gave forth water is said to have followed them in the wilderness. And if you've been to Israel, you'll know that this is true. It would have been impossible for them to have survived this trek without it. Paul shows that they were, in fact, sustained by the rock in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It says there, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. And the manna is said to have never ceased during the entire time from Exodus 16 all the way up until Joshua chapter 5. They simply did not consider Christ, meaning the water and the manna, acceptable. Verse 5 continues, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. Here they use a term of great contempt, hakelokel, or the worthless it is an intensification of the word kalal, meaning cursed or lightly esteemed, and it is only seen this one time in all of Scripture. It is as if they are being cheated by the grace of the giving of the manna instead of having bread that they could go work for on their own. Verse, You see what's going on? Picturing work salvation instead of the grace of Christ. Verse 6, So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. Here it says, Yehovah sent hanachashim haserafim, or the serpents, the burning. It is debated by scholars whether the words the burning refers to their physical color or their painful bite. The word saraf in this noun form is first seen here, and it will only be used seven times. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, the word is used again to describe the serpents, and it is stated in conjunction with scorpions. Therefore, it is referring to the bite of the snake regardless of the color. This is an important point. You think I'm going to be beating this to death. I'm not. There's a reason why I'm doing this. There's no reason to assume that there's only one type of snake is even being referred to. The people are inundated with poisonous snakes, which cause extreme burning. Verse 6 continues, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. At the Lord's command, they were brought forth, and in response to the command, they inundated the people. It is the bite which is focused on here, and the death which results is highlighted. In this, it was obvious to the people that this was more than just a chance occurrence, but rather a divine rebuke for their faithless conduct. Instead of crying out to the Lord for relief, they cried out against God and against his lawgiver in distrust and ingratitude. The serpents were their just reward for their conduct, as is next noted. Verse 7, therefore the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Here's another clear reference to the deity of Jesus Christ. It says in this verse that they had spoken against Jehovah and against Moses. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul identifies Christ as the one who is spoken against. Here's what he says, nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. It is impossible to read these two passages and not arrive at a one-to-one -one correlation between Jehovah and Christ Jesus. Unless the Bible is simply a contradictory, confused book, it must be so. Therefore, when one speaks against Jesus Christ, including his deity, one speaks against the Lord God. They have spoken against the Lord, and they have spoken against the Lord's lawgiver, meaning Moses. But Moses only speaks what the Lord speaks forth first. This was seen in our text first today. The law was given through Moses, not by Moses. And truth came through Jesus Christ. 
As Jesus said to the Father, your word is truth. Jesus is the incarnate word, and he is the embodiment of the law and of truth. And so they speak to Moses, not that he should heal them, but that he would go to the Lord for their healing. Verse 7 continues, pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. Moses has interceded for the people on several occasions, but this is the only recorded time that the people have asked him to do so on their behalf. And it is specifically for the Lord to take away the serpents which were afflicting them. However, in the Hebrew, it says, and take away from us the serpent. It is singular. One could argue that the singular stands for the plural. But that is not how an excited group would speak in such a manner. They'd say there's snakes everywhere. Get rid of them. Rather, this is a clear allusion to the Nahash of Genesis chapter 3. Ultimately, death came through the serpent. And only the Lord can take away the power of the serpent. This is explicitly stated by the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 2. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. The serpent of Genesis 3, also called the devil elsewhere, and who has the power of death, could only be destroyed by the power of the one who gave the law, through which came sin in the first place. Verse 7 continues, so Moses prayed for the people. Here Moses, emblematic of the law which came through him, appeals to the Lord on behalf of the people. It is a clear indication that only the Lord, from whom came the law, can destroy the power of the devil. As that Lord is said in Hebrews chapter 2 to be the incarnate Christ, then it, once again, can only mean that Jesus is the Lord God. In theology, one plus one always equals two. And so the divine answer to the request is given, and it is an answer which explicitly points in typology to Jesus Christ. Verse 8, then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent. Make to you fiery. Moses is told to emulate the fiery of the serpent. The question with this is, as already mentioned above, is the fiery speaking of color or of the burning death it causes? Verse 8 continues, and set it on a pole. Vesim oto al nes, and set it on a standard. The word is nes, which comes from nasas, meaning high or conspicuous. It was first and only used so far in Exodus 17, verse 15, where it referred to the Lord Yehovah. There it said, Yehovah Nissi, the Lord is my banner. Here, the fiery is to be set on a standard. It is not one with the standard, but it is placed on it. Only then do the two become one, and only then will there be an effect. Is everybody seeing it? It is made this way for a particular purpose. Verse 8 continues, And it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. Here we have a perfect example of being saved by grace through faith. The fiery on the pole is harmless, but it bears resemblance to the death which surrounded them, and yet it then brings life. Further, it is not merely the fiery on the banner that brings life, nor is it the act of looking at something that brings life. It is only when the act of looking at the fiery on the pole that life is granted. 
verse 9. So Moses made a bronze serpent. Scholars claim that this conclusively proves that it is the bronze color, which is being referred to in the word saraf, or fiery, which describes the snakes rather than the bite, which causes burning death. That is a faulty conclusion, which will be seen as we continue. For now, Moses does as instructed and first makes nachas nechoshet, or serpent bronze. Verse 9 continues, and put it on a pole. In accord with the word of the Lord, the serpent, after it is made, after it is made, is put on the standard. The two only become one at this point. The implication is that without the standard, the serpent has no effect. Without the serpent, the standard has no effect. Verse 9 finishes with, and so it was. If a serpent had bitten anyone when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. As promised by Jehovah, so it came about. Those who looked to the Nahash HaNechoshet, or serpent the bronze, were healed. They were already dead through the bite. It just had not yet been finalized. But by faith in looking at the bronze serpent, that assured death was negated. If one didn't look to it, death, which was already alive in the person, was inevitable. As I said, it is the bite resulting in death which is represented by the word fiery, not the color of the snake. The reason for this is first, bronze has been used consistently so far to indicate judgment and also endurance. It will continue to consistently picture that all the way throughout scripture. This judgment can be positive or negative. If positive, it results in purification and justification. If negative, it results in punishment or even death. However, there is the truth that in order for there to be positive judgment for the sinful person, then there must be death of an innocent in his place. Therefore, the positive judgment still carries with it a negative aspect. Second, because there must be death of an innocent in place of an offender to be absolved of sin, then the fiery is referring to the bite of death, not the color of the serpent. The serpent brought death, and therefore death is what is being portrayed in the standard. It is, in essence, a movable substitute for the brazen altar and a pictorial representation of what occurs there, death in the form of a substitute. Do you all remember the brazen altar? Come to the sanctuary, bring your animal, the animal is slaughtered there, the animal is burnt up, parts of it are holy or whatever on that altar. This thing that they are carrying around, this nahash, which is on the nest, the serpent on the standard, is a movable picture of that altar. You've all got that. The book is written and sealed with the final word, amen. God has a plan which will surely come about. Be sure to refer to it time and time again, and you will be strengthened for the battle, no doubt. The Lord is my banner, exalted is he. He stands upon the high mountain watching over us, and he is the victor over even the greatest enemy. He is the one who prevailed even over death, our Lord Jesus. Surely from generation to generation our foes are defeated because the lamb who to Calvary's tree was nailed. So marvelous is the story. It needs to again be repeated until the end of time. Our Lord, our Christ has prevailed. Our third thought, wonderful stuff. Wonderful. I'm sorry, I don't mean to yell, but if I speak any lower, I ain't going to get any sound out at all. I'm to that point. Pictures of Christ. What we have in these passages ties directly in with Aaron's death of the previous chapter. 
His death in the 39th year of his ministry was shown to be the ending of the Mosaic Law, just as the ending of the Old Testament of 39 books was coming to its completion. After that is recorded, we have the three verses concerning Israel, Arad and Hormah. Unlike before, Israel does not try to conquer the Canaanites under their own power, nor do they attempt to do so prior to entering the land of promise. <coughs> Despite being recorded here, we saw that only occurs later. Some of Israel were made captive, but the rest will deal with them at the Lord's will, not theirs. That is a clear indication of not battling those who oppose the gospel by one's own efforts, but through the efforts and will of the Lord. Only after entry into the promised inheritance, the enemies will be utterly destroyed. From there, it mentions Mount Hor. That is where Aaron died and was buried. The high priest has died, and the people are ready to begin a securitous route to Canaan around the land of Edom. As we saw in the last sermon, Edom was given as a picture of Adam, the natural man. Israel, the spiritual man, must go around the natural to enter the promise. In this trek of man, the devil, the serpent, is brought out. This is a snapshot of what happened in human history. Man was in the garden, and he rejected the way of the Lord's leading. In this, the people spoke against God and against Moses. Moses, the lawgiver, pictures law here, whatever law. In Eden, man rejected God, and he rejected God's law. And so, through the serpent came death. It is the bite of the serpent by which this comes. After the fall, the people admit their sin and ask law to intercede for them to the Lord. This is exactly what occurred. As I said, when Moses prayed for the people, the serpent of Genesis chapter 3, who has the power of death, could only be destroyed by the power of the one who gave the law, through which came sin in the first place. The law of Moses intercedes for the people because the law calls for the coming Messiah to do so. That's why we're seeing pictures of Christ on every page, is because the law is calling for the Lord to come and intercede. This is where the story of redemption meets up with the picture of Aaron's death, which anticipated Christ in the narrative. Christ, the embodiment of the law, came in the form of sinful flesh. Here's what it says in Romans chapter 8. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. And from Romans 5, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I think that's 1 Corinthians 5.21. I put Romans, forgive me on that. It is Christ who took the curse upon himself that removes the curse in his people. The fiery serpent was first made. Christ was first given a body. Only then was he placed on the standard. People saw Christ walk in Israel, and that didn't save them. And people saw crosses all the time in Israel, and those didn't save them. Only when Christ went to the cross is the picture complete. Only in that can Paul say this in Colossians chapter 2, And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, 
He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. And only then could Peter say concerning Christ that he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. It is the death on the cross which replaces the sting of the serpent, meaning death, which is the result of sin and which finds its strength in the law. As Christ embodies the law, and as Christ died in fulfillment of the law, the power of the law, and thus the power of sin, is defeated and it is annulled. This is why Paul calls out the victory cry in Romans chapter 7. He says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That this is the correct and sure interpretation of what we have seen today is confirmed by the words of Jesus himself. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved." The death in the people because of the sting of the serpent pictures the sting of sin in all of us. We're already dead, but in Christ we are made alive. Then the next verse of John, John 3:18, Jesus says, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. It is not to be missed that Isaiah speaks of the Lord in his work using the same word, ness, or standard, twice concerning the coming Messiah and his cross. He says this from Isaiah chapter 11, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, speaking of Jesus, descending from David, David is from Jesse, there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner, a ness to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him and his resting place shall be glorious. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam and Shinar, from Hamat and the islands of the sea. He will set up a banner, a ness for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of of the earth that is happening in our lifetime. Isaiah notes that the Gentiles, in relation to this banner, before speaking of the regathering of Israel, he also notes that it is a second regathering of them. Isaiah prophesied this before the first exile of Israel. Isaiah presupposes two exiles, and he prophesies that the Gentiles would seek the Messiah before collective Israel would. This is exactly what's been seen in these ongoing passages. Israel has been out there wandering in the wilderness for 38 years, picturing Israel under punishment these past 2,000 years. While that's been going on, God wasn't wasting time. Gentiles have streamed to Christ. Only at the end of the time of the wandering are the Jews now calling out to Christ in ever-increasing numbers. It is in looking to Christ, believing in what he did, and receiving that and nothing else that the dead soul is brought to life. 
It is as clearly presented in today's passage, a voluntary act of the will. Unless one voluntarily receives Christ Jesus by looking to the cross in faith, there can be no salvation. So choose wisely. Choose Christ. Isn't this wonderful what God has shown us in this word? He's giving us pictures and hints of his son all the way through the law of Moses. Genesis, every story is about Jesus. Exodus, it's all about Jesus. Leviticus, every sacrifice, every offering, it's all about Jesus. And we get to numbers and you think, oh, I can't stand any more of the law. And you see how it's all about Jesus. Please, if you've never called on Jesus Christ as Lord, make it today. All he asks for you to do is to look. Look to the cross and say, I believe he did this for me. He gave up his life for me. He died for me. He destroyed the power of the devil for me. I received that and you will be saved. That's all he asks of you. Let me go back to the first verse here, our text verse. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace is something you cannot earn. It's something that's given to you freely. If you'll just look to the cross and ask him to forgive you, he will. Our closing verse today is from 1 Corinthians 15. It's verses 56 and 57. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is law. All these people that want to be back under the law of Moses, they have to be absolutely insane crazy to want to go back under the law which only highlights your sin and condemns you but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ absolutely wonderful what he has done for us next week is going to be numbers 21 10 through 20 so exciting it will be as if you are needles and pins it's entitled oddly enough filling wineskins what is that about That'll be our 41st number sermon. You want to know something? This, I just thought of this. This 40th sermon that we're doing corresponds really well to Isaiah chapter 40. If you know Isaiah had 66 chapters in Isaiah, and there's 66 chapters of uh, books in the Bible. Each one of them corresponds very well. And the 40th book happens to be the Gospel of Matthew. It's the beginning of the New Testament. What does it say there? Let me take you to Isaiah chapter 40. Here we're talking about the cross of Jesus Christ and the comfort that God will provide his people in that. And here's what it says in Isaiah chapter 40. Yeah, I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I'm just going to read you the first couple words. Comfort. Yes, comfort my people, says your God. It's all about the cross of Christ. And it's unbelievable. We just happen to be coinciding with these things in our sermons. I love it. It's like little little pat on the back from the Lord that you guys are searching out his word and you're sharing in the glory that God has given us in the pages of this wonderful book. It's marvelous. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It may seem at times as if you were lost in a desert, wandering aimlessly, maybe getting bit by snakes, but the Lord is there. He's carefully leading you to the land of promise. And so follow him and trust him. And he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? All right, I got a poem for you to, to read for you and I'll be done. Actually, that's not true. Remember I said I had something really cool? <laughs> Let me ask you a question before I get this. I'll give you a Maserati if you answer this properly. What is a coded message using the first or last letters of a sentence to say something else? 
Remember the book of Esther, and we, we decided to do this. We spent some time on this. Acrostic. Who said that? Hey, you get a Maserati, buddy. Hey, hey. You, can't, you can't take it with you. It's just yours by name. It's yours by name. Okay. I was sitting there. I should have done this about a month ago, but I really don't like asking Sergio to do stuff because Sergio is a really busy guy. If you email him, you're going to have somebody that's already backed up, further backed up. He's a really busy guy. He's working hard to get back to the U.S. and get a lot of other things done in the process. But I knew something was going to be in this passage. I said, Sergio, if you have time, he had to do it through my computer, so he logged in and he did it through my computer, and then he uh, came and he printed it off, and last night while I was asleep, he looked at the acrostic search that we did. It took about five hours or four hours. I don't know how long for it to process. Maybe, maybe it's shorter than that, but... By the end of the day, he finally got it, and he downloaded it to his computer. And he did not read my sermon. He didn't read the passage. He was interested in the, the material, okay? So this isn't something made up. These are acrostics that he ran. Nobody's ever seen this in human history. Let's go. Let's just get out of here. Okay, you want to hear this. This is really wonderful. His first word, wow. This chapter has some unbelievable acrostics hidden. When I first saw the acrostics that the computer algorithm found in this chapter, I was immediately fascinated, and I saw him because he was going through and he was highlighting them right in front of me. Immediately fascinated because of the collection of words which are all connected to each other, but even more so to the context of the chapter. And I told him just to do the, the part on the brazen serpent, not a rod, nothing else, because it's very complicated and it takes a long time to do this. I wanted him to focus on just these few verses. It takes a long time. Yeah, there you go. It takes a long time to sort them and put them into sentences. So unfortunately, I was only able to look at a couple verses. You guys are getting just a taste of what is in these five or six verses that we looked at. I'm telling you, there is a lot in God's word, and we just dismiss it. Acrostics aren't something that you can fudge, like Bible codes and all that kind of stuff. People make, you can't. It's just clear letters. The first letter of each word, etc. okay? Verse 6. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. And then he puts it in Hebrew here. The acrostics in this verse are fascinating. Check this out. If we take the first letters of the entire verse and write them down, we will get a grammatically correct Hebrew sentence. And he writes it in Hebrew, which I can't read because it doesn't have the vowel points for me. Shame on him. With the exception of the hey in the middle, which I can't make sense of, this sentence reads, and that one came cunning. Think of the devil. Cunning, arom, is the same word as used in Genesis 3.1, which I've been talking about in here, to describe the serpent who is cunning. It is important to note that there is an article, the, which makes it clear that it alludes to Satan, who is cunning. It's not just an arbitrary sentence. It is speaking of the devil. In this verse, which we've been talking about the devil, and he did not look at my sermon. He didn't even have it until this morning when I sent it to him. And he was floored. He couldn't believe it. But that's not all for this verse. If we take the last letter of each word and write them down, we'll get six different acrostics, which all have the same root word. This is almost impossible. The same root word would be in all six of them. You don't see this. I've seen a million acrostics because he runs them all the time. The word? Death. Die in their death, their end from death. He killed them. And died. That cannot be a coincidence that the verse that speaks about snakes, he put a cute little snake there icon, that have killed many 
has a hidden acrostic sentence referring to the cunning one, and then six acrostics speaking all about death. Six being the number of man destined to die. Unbelievable. Which is what the Bible teaches. Six is the number of fallen man. And then he emailed me back 10 seconds later, and he says, I just realized that the number of the verse is six. Ha! He says. And then later he came and he said, Charlie, verse seven, the sentence, pray to the Lord that he takes away the serpent from us, has a backwards acrostic in that it forms. Anybody want to guess what it is? No? No? What was it that the people went, what did the people do? They went to somebody to intercede for the Lord. What? Moses. And what does Moses picture? The law. The word Torah. Law. It's the word that they use for law. Could it be that the people are asking Moses to take away the law? Which is exactly what my sermon has said. At least ten times I said it. Take away the law from them that brought forth death. I mean, I say how many times during this sermon? And he's just speculating. He hasn't seen any of my sermon notes. Verse 9 has an incredible acrostic. The words, set it on a pole, form an acrostic. Ha-aven. Even I can read that. The iniquity. The words, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten form an acrostic. Ne-ave, meaning fitting. The two word acrostics are one after the other. They have no separation. Together they form the sentence, fitting iniquity. What incredible picture of Christ. The iniquity which is fitting upon the people is set on a pole. Further, the word fitting could also be translated as lovely or beautiful, depending on the context. And my answer to him was, that's why we worship Jesus who went to the beautiful cross. I'm telling you what, this people dismiss this word and they talk about it like it's some type of irrelevant thing. This is just, this, this is something he spent a bit of time on there. But if he had two or three days, he would have had the entire thing figured out for you. A whole story about what we just read. And you can't make these things up. It's clear text. All you have to do is you use a computer because it's very hard to sit there and figure these things out. But the computer does it and just highlights it. It's right there in clear text. Our poem today is called The Standard of the Lord. The King of Arad. Wasn't that wonderful? You're first people in human history to hear that, apart from Sergio and me, of course. The Standard of the Lord. The King of Arad, the Canaanite, who dwelt in the south, heard that Israel was coming on the road to Atharim. Then he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. This was uncalled for, so it would seem. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. We know that you surely understand. And the Lord listened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, we might say, ooh-la-la. And they utterly destroyed them and their cities. So the name of that place was called Hormah. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea, as the record does say, to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And her soul loathes this bread. It is worthless. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people who had the Lord tried, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us, the Torah, take it away. So Moses prayed for the people, this thing he did do. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, these instructions I give. 
and it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, so he did do. And it, so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Woohoo! Lord God, we are even now in the wilderness, and we are wanting to be led by you. Without you to direct our lives would be a mess, and so be our guide, O oh God, you who are faithful and true. We long for the water in this barren land. May it flow forth from the rock. Our souls dissatisfy. Give us this refreshing spiritual hand, and may we take it into our lives daily. It apply. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you. To us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm so glad I pestered him. I, I was thinking I better send him an email and ask him to do this acrostic search. And I know it's going to bother him. And he was so excited this morning. I'm glad we did it. We had a good time together. And I'm telling you, the word is, you know, just imagine this is a couple verses in the Bible. How many millions of acrostics there are. And they all, the Lord has woven it all together. This is his word. It, it's astonishing.